Hi there, Caitlin here. Our mission at EB Academics is simple. Help middle school ELA teachers take back their time outside of the classroom by providing them with engaging lessons, planning frameworks, and genuine support so that you can become the best version of yourself, both inside and outside of the classroom. So if you think you might be ready to try something new because you know you simply cannot continue the way that you have been, that I'd invite you to take a moment to check out the EB Teachers Club, the EB Writing Program, or the EB Grammar Program by visiting the links in the description of the podcast. We hope to continue to support you within one of our programs in the future. And in the meantime, we look forward to serving you right here on the podcast each week. All right, teachers, welcome back to the Teaching Middle School ELA podcast. It's Jessica here. And you are in for an absolute treat today because I have the pleasure of chatting with Dr. Rebecca Harper, who, Dr. Harper, I don't know if you remember this. I mentioned this when you were our VIP speaker at Batch Planning Live that, you know, everyone adored you and loved you. But I first heard you speak last year at a conference, the LitCon in January, and I was in your session and within five minutes... I was like, okay, this is hands down the best session of the conference. And the teachers around me started saying that. And they're like texting their principals, get in here. You need to hear this woman speak. She has so many good ideas. So you just blew me away with your wisdom. And that's why we got you to be a speaker at our BPL event. And again, teachers were obsessed with your content. So I just think anyone who is listening today is going to learn so much value from you. So thank you for joining us here today. Really, really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Anytime anybody asks me to speak about literacy, I'm thrilled. So I appreciate the invite. I love it. So would you give our listeners just a bit of background information about you and what your experience is in literacy and education? Yeah. So um, I was a middle grades teacher before I came to university. And in particular, I taught writing. And I ended up in middle school, you know, not because I had planned to be there, but just kind of on accident. I needed a job and I graduated in the middle of the year and I was working at Title I school and I, I taught four classes of writing. It was an academic exploratory, which meant that we competed with PE and art and band and all the really fun extracurricular right. So I got new kids every nine weeks and the students that I had were reading and writing significantly below grade level. So you're talking eighth grade kids reading and writing on a second or third grade level. So I really didn't know what I was doing. So that's kind of how that was my, you know, first like thrown into the deep end. And then I had a baby and I had planned to go back into the classroom and I took one look at her and I couldn't, I couldn't leave her. And she's a senior this year, which is so bizarre. But then I came to the university and that was kind of another accident too. I had been home for a couple of years with a toddler and I just, I I didn't want to go back to work full time, but I knew I wanted to get back into the classroom. And I contacted an old professor of mine here in Aiken. And he said, we don't have anything adjunct here, but I have a friend at Augusta University. Maybe you should, you know, contact them. So I went in for an interview for what I thought was going to be an adjunct position. And I was offered a full-time temporary position for the rest of the semester because they had a professor who had um, moved into another um, spot. And that was almost 16 years ago. And so it just, you know, that that's where I've been. And right now, I've worked with uh, pre-service teachers and under, you know, undergrads. I've taught teachers who are in master's programs, the um, the EDS educational specialist program, and now I coordinate and the program director for our EDD 
and I direct our Augusta University writing project. So now what I do, I, the people I work with most most often are practicing teachers or administrators, mainly practicing teachers and instructional coaches. And then I do professional learning all over the country with uh, different teachers and districts and go in classrooms and teach and those kinds of things. You are one busy woman. Oh my goodness. <laughs> but it's fun. I bet it is. So today, you know, we're chatting about how we can cut back on grading, how we can give meaningful feedback to our teachers. So I'm curious with those practicing teachers that you work with, what are some of the challenges you hear from them about grading writing or about grading anything ELA really in the classroom? Well, I think the biggest challenge with grading writing is how long it takes when you grade a completed assignment, right? And and that's Mm -hmm. typically the way that we look at grading writing. We look at it in the sense of we're going to grade these big, fully involved projects that, you know, go from pre-writing all the way to the end. And that takes a lot of time because there's a lot of things that happen along the process. And, you know, the writing process isn't linear, it's recursive, but the way that it's taught a lot of times in the the classroom is that it's a step-by-step, you know, first you pre-write and then you write draft and then you revise. And, and that's not really the way the writing works. You know, you're revising as you go. And so there is not like this step-by-step piece. And sometimes your pre-writing doesn't have to exist on paper. Sometimes that brainstorming exists only in your head. Uh, So I think that the way that we tend to look at grading writing is that we grade these big final assessments and we have a rubric and the rubric normally has, you know, 18 different domains and, you know, it's, it's a five point scale and the kids don't know what it means. And some of the teachers don't know what it means. And so it's, it's very, very overwhelming. And especially for a middle grades or a high school person where you're teaching, you might have a hundred kids. That, that you're teaching in ELA. So who has time to sit down and grade with a rubric, you know, 100 plus essays? So that's that's one of the things that I hear about grading. But I, I think the, the, the bigger issue is if you kind of rewind the tape a little bit more, is some teachers don't even have a product to grade because they're not incorporating writing on a daily basis. So that becomes problematic too, that there's really... You know, it's like, okay, so we are going to do one big writing in nine weeks. And then the kids a lot of times struggle with that. And then that's a huge writing grade for them. And if they don't succeed on all those components of the rubric, then it's it's, it's not a successful assignment. And it's really, it doesn't, it doesn't build um, a lot of, uh, you know, a positive culture within the, the, for the students. If, if, you know, that one uh, experience with writing each nine weeks is a big, big, huge task that they may have passed barely. Um, so I think that's a, that's a, that's another issue too. Oh my gosh, 100%. And just listening to you say that, you're literally describing my experience right now. I'm volunteering in my son's fifth grade classroom. And yesterday they wrapped up their narrative writing unit. It did take nine weeks. And it's like, we were in the crunch mode of, I took half the class and the teacher had half the class. And we were like, okay, we're going to polish these essays really quickly because tomorrow's your publishing party and we are going to grade them. And it's the same thing. We had the rubric in front of us. And yes, there were some that were, you know, fine and great. And others, I was like, oh my gosh, this is a paragraph. Basically they've worked on for nine weeks and this is their one writing grade. So it's like kind of a scary situation to be in. So I'm curious then, like, what do you suggest for teachers to break away from that okay, we're doing our writing unit for nine weeks, grade the assignment, move on to the next. Like, what's the alternative, I guess? So I think there's a couple of things. I think that, unfortunately, sometimes 
district curriculum programs and pacing guides teach writing in the silo. So narrative is first quarter and informational is the second quarter and, you know, uh, persuasive is, you know, the next. Right. And and so you just like you you focus on that, that nine weeks, and then you don't see, you might not see narrative again, you know, for 12, 16, however many weeks. But one of, one of the things, you know, I, I think I told you when I saw y'all this summer is like I, everything I do, I'm always thinking about literacy in some form or fashion, whether I'm sitting in, I was sitting in the barbershop with my son the other day and I was, there was this guy reading and I'm watching him move his lips like he's saying the words. And I'm, I'm just fascinated with just things, things like that, you know, that, that how, how literacy is all around us. But a couple of years ago, and this is going to make sense in a minute. Okay. I was at a swim meet. All three of my children swim competitively. And at this particular meet, we had three swimmers from our team who swam the 200 meter fly. Okay. Which if you've ever seen that event, it is a grueling physical event. It's what Michael Phelps was known for. It's absolutely beautiful. You know, think about how his wingspan with, you know, coming out of the water. And we had, so three swimmers swimming this, this, this race, two of them made it to the hundred meter mark and got out, quit, just deuces, we're done. So the other guy made it to the 195 meter mark, took three freestyle pools, did a finish with two hand illegal touch, got out of the pool and threw up on deck. Okay. All three of those swimmers got the same grade. They all got disqualified. Okay. The two who got out and didn't finish and the one who did everything legal, 195 meters. And on those last five meters deviated and did three freestyle strokes. And I, I have not, I cannot shake that kid. I cannot shake him. Not because of the swim part. I don't care about that. But it makes me think about assessment and our students. Okay. So how do you make those 195 meters count? That kid did everything right up until that last point. But on the final assessment, the final grade, he failed. So how often do we have kids who do everything on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, they do everything right. Friday is an off day for them. And it happens to be an assessment day. And everything they did Monday through Thursday doesn't count. So I think that when we think about grading, we have to look at it. We have to kind of shift the sand in the glass a little bit and look at things differently. That is it really valuable or as valuable to have just a final grade or does it is it better for you, the student, the you know, the culture, everything in the classroom to have checkpoints along the way so that you can make those 195 meters count. Right. So. I don't think it makes good sense to wait until the draft is in, you know, and, and then give a final grade there. Um, I also don't think that we need to be looking at every single thing on the rubric every single time because that's overwhelming. Um, I, I suggest to teachers on a regular basis, like I don't care what genre you're teaching. It doesn't matter what grade you're teaching, what subject. I, I don't care. Your paper has to be organized effectively. OK, so organization should be something you always are assessing across the board because there's, you know, there's organization that might be like a sequential organization if you're doing something that's kind of a step by step. But there's also a logical progression of ideas if you're writing in a, a different genre where you have to make sure that the reader is following, you know, how you're taking them through this this piece. So I advocate for teachers having checkpoints throughout and those might be informal pieces. It might be, you know, enough for me to say, you know, as far as like, you know, uh, word choice, you know, am I, as I'm looking at their drafts and seeing how they're using vivid vocabulary or academic vocabulary, what, depending on your discipline, you know, did, did they do that? And, and, in this section, if they did, cool, 
let's move on. You know, that can be an assessment right there. But I think that when we wait until the end, you know, to give that grade, then those people who did all the things all the way up, you know, up to that point and somehow mess up at the end, you know, all that other stuff's just lost. And it doesn't, it wouldn't make me want to write anymore. You know, if I know I worked really hard, you know, and I, and I had, I mean, listen, I, I taught middle school and I had kids who, they would, they couldn't keep stuff walking between first period and second period. So some of them would lose their, their rough draft. And if you don't have your rough draft, you can't do your final and all that stuff. So I think you got to have checkpoints. And I also think that every single writing task doesn't have to be the New Testament. It doesn't have to be this long, you know, epistle. It can be, you can do narrative every day. I mean, you know, we, that, that's probably the easiest, you know, that I think an argument, I think narrative is, 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 is one of the easier, most more natural genres because we are natural uh, storytellers. We, we live storied lives, you know, Clandon and Conley talk about that in their um, narrative inquiry book that, you know, we, we tell these stories about our days and, you know, what's uh, something that happened in the past and then argument. Oh my gosh, if you teach middle school or high school, they're in a better candidate on the planet they can argue better than a middle school kid or a high school kid you just have to get them to see how they can pivot those things to make it you know fit into this you know pretty structured genre so you know sometimes it's the smaller pieces you know does it have to be a whole and the other thing too is if you know that your final product product is going to be this i'm always thinking about what's my end game so you know what is my end game why do my students need to be able to do this thing and how am i going to get them there so i'm building to that end game all the way through my teaching. And so that means that I'm going to be assessing these little chunks here, there, and everywhere. So that by the time they get to the the final draft, they, they you know, you kind of front loaded all the other work and the final draft is just kind of a formality. You know, you put all the work together. So, but it's got to be ongoing feedback throughout the whole process. I love that. And I, I mean, first, like the swimming story is so powerful, right? And it totally does make sense. And then when you do focus on the product, the end game, but you're building up to it, it really does take the pressure off students. And I just feel like sometimes writing is so intimidating for them. But if you are building in those milestones, it's like, oh, well, it's, I don't want to say it's just another lesson, but in a way, kind of, because it's like, all right, today I'm going to check in. How is that strong vocabulary? Or how is your lead for your narrative? And it's like, oh, I can do that, right? Like I can be successful in that one small thing. And like, what a confidence booster for students. Sure. So. Mm-hmm. Then when I'm thinking like in terms of planning, so if, you know, I am going to do an argument unit next or something like that, when you're sitting down and you're mapping out that lesson then, or that entire unit, are you intentionally saying, okay, like, here's the milestone I'm going to check for. Like, are you physically, I guess, writing that down or mapping that out so that you're holding yourself accountable? I'm just thinking like, how do teachers start integrating this? Because it is so different than what we're taught in school, right? Of like, okay, you grade the final assessment and there you go. So I'm going to show you something, but I need to get up and get it. Is that okay? Okay. Go for it. And for those of you listening, like, are you already just like minds blown with what Dr. Harper is saying? I swear, like, I, so I'm going to plug your book right here. You have your book right now, right on. And I have it next to me. And it is just like full of notes because everything you say, I'm always like, oh, I need to try that. Or that's such a good idea. And I feel the same way listening to you speak right now. You're just so full of wisdom. So my Instructional planning process is a lot like my writing process is recursive. And so it looks kind of like this. Okay. Okay, So describe what you're holding up if someone's not watching. This this is a hot mess, but this (laughs) is where, uh, you know, I, 
ideas for lessons go. This is where, um, you know, if I'm, when I'm working on a new book and mm-hmm. I'm writing down lessons, they go in here. This is where, you know, I might have, you know, some, like I've got paint strips in here. So I'm Oh, our about- EB teachers are going to know about that. You shared that at Batch Plenty Live and they all went out and bought paint strips. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's just like, there, there's, there are so many things that you can do with it, but this is just kind of how, you know, like when I'm, uh, you know, this, this actually, okay. So when people talk about, you know, how do you plan and how do you write these books? This is an outline for a book that I wrote while I was on the beach a couple of years ago. And so this, this is where all this stuff happens. So when, when I lesson plan, it probably looks a little bit different because the first thing that I always do, you know, I already know what I, what I have to teach, right? Because I have standards, but I don't know the who. So it's more important to know the who because then then I can do the what. So the way that I'm, you know, and, and that's why I, I'm not a big fan of like a genre of nine weeks because it just, that to me, you know, there, there's different ways that you can drop in quick writes and you can do quick write arguments, you know, Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday, even if it's your narrative nine weeks. I mean, you've got to kind of sprinkle those different genres throughout. Absolutely. But, so when I'm thinking like, for for example, for an argument, one of the things that I do with that is, you know, part of it, you, you, when you're doing research, students need to know what a credible versus a non-credible source is. So six weeks before I might be getting ready to start my argument argumentative unit, I might, on my bell ringer, I might have a topic on the smart board or on the whiteboard. And as kids come in, I'll say, all right, I want you to find me a source that you could get information about this thing on the board. And then they tell them to me and I just throw them all up on the board. And then we start kind of sifting through all those different uh, sources and determining which ones are credible and which ones aren't. And that's where I typically do a critical, I show them how to to critically analyze a source because it's not, we can't give students blanket examples and set and like by saying, oh, well, you can't ever use social media or you can't use blogs because that's not accurate. So if you want to, to bake a turkey for Thanksgiving or for whatever, and you went to the Pioneer Woman's blog, she's a credible source. Why? Because she's written multiple books. She's got a cooking show. She's an expert in in cooking. She has all of these things that make her credible. But if I tell a kid, you can't ever use blogs, they would never be able to use her if they're getting ready to make a turkey. They would have to get, you know, be looking someplace else. So we have those discussions. And then I give them, I don't think I have um, the right color paint strips, but I typically would give them uh, paint strips like the one I just showed you. But I would do. And just for listeners, we're literally talking about like the paint strips you find at Home Depot or Lowe's where it's like the different colors. Yep. Yes. So I would get a green one and a red one. Okay. And I don't have any green and red here, but um, and then I would say, okay, for a credible source, any of the credible sources that we have on here, we're going to put on the green paint strip because those are our go sources. And any ones that aren't credible going to go are going to go on our red paint strip because those are stop sources. We don't use those. So so um, that's my bell ringer. Okay. And my little mini lesson. Then I'm going to put the students with a partner and I'm going to put like six or eight different topics on the board that I know that we're going to be working on six weeks from now, but the children don't know and I'm not going to tell them. Okay. And I'm going to say, all right, so you're going to pick one of these topics and with your partner, you're going to create your list of stop and go sources. Okay. What's credible and what's not credible. They turn those in. We put them away. We don't talk about them for a while. Fast forward six weeks. I put those same eight topics on the board and I say, all right, we're going to start our argument. This is, we're going to do an argumentative unit. Here are your eight topics. Okay. So the first thing you want to do is you want to find sources, but guess what? Y'all already did that. 
So I'm gonna go back to this thing. And and, and that helps me as a teacher when you have a student who says, well, I can't find anything on so-and-so. Well, you go back into pull all the green paint strips that are on that particular topic. And that's your, that's where you start. If you have a student who says, I don't know if this um, uh, source is credible or not, you go back to those same paint strips. So what I'm doing six weeks prior is helping me prep for what I've got them doing later. Um, and then I would just do different little pieces throughout that argumentative unit. So one little mini, um, mini lesson checkpoint might be um, your ability to write, to articulate your claim and find supporting evidence for a claim. Okay, that might be one checkpoint. One checkpoint might be the counterclaim, you know, making sure you mm -hmm. include the counterclaim and counterclaim and how do you address that. Um, one might be, you know, um, how you can categorize evidence that's weak versus strong evidence. One might be on, you know, making sure you incorporate evidence across a variety of sources. Uh, and so all those are checkpoints. And so I'm, I'm, I'm hitting those things throughout the, the entire unit. And then by the time the unit's done, they already have five you know, daily grades or whatever you want to call them. And so then those are those checkpoints along, along the way. Plus that helps me if I go around and I realize that like a lot of my people are having a hard time with, uh, you know, making sure that they have appropriate evidence for a claim, then that I can take a step back and go, all right, guys, so here's what we're going to do. Um, and then I also, you know, I think sometimes we tell students too much up front. And when you start talking to a, a young adult, um, an adolescent, about writing an argument that includes a claim with evidence and a counterclaim and a conclusion and all this stuff, and you're going to have to research and use multiple sources and, and all those pieces, none of that really sounds like fun. It just doesn't. I mean, it just doesn't. And so a lot of kids shut down before they even, even start. So what I do is that's why I like to use paint strips and post-its a lot, because I can have I can tell students. All right. So, you know, in this first source that we're reading, you know, I'm going to give you post-its and I want you we're going to read. We're looking for we're reading for a certain purpose. So we want to set the purpose for reading. And then I have them, you know, they might use post-its or I might give them a paint strip like this and they list evidence on here. And then we do that for multiple articles. Then I do a thing on a claim. Then we cut these paint strips into pieces and we find any of the evidence from our uh, research. But I don't even know that we're doing research because I hadn't said that word that match the claim. And then by the time we're done, they built this whole argument, but they don't even know they've done it because we've been doing little pieces at the time. And because I'm not, you know, in their faces with, you know, all this technical academic jargon, let's just do it. And then I can tell you when we're done what we, you know, what we did. Um, but just doing it in the small pieces and not having to kind of start over every single, single time, you're going to go back to that same writing and add to it. That makes it a lot easier for kids too. Oh my gosh. It's, it's so brilliant. And it's, and then how great for the teacher that you have all this data throughout the course of seven weeks, eight weeks, whatever it is, and that you get a much more accurate picture of what your students are capable of. Yeah. So then on those, those mini lessons or those activities that you're talking about, what kind of feedback do you suggest teachers leave? Is this just like a quick rubric and checking things off or are teachers conferencing and giving commentary? Like, what do you think is most effective in terms of that feedback? I mean, I'm not a huge rubric fan. Um, because I think a lot of students, and at least what I, what I see with, um, a lot of the students I teach now, but also with, with some of the, 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 the adolescents that I work with, some of the rubrics were very overwhelming. They were too, they had too much in there. They had too much technical jargon. Um, and then I also noticed that some students would only look at what a four was and they were just trying to check it off 
as a box. Like, oh, I included academic vocabulary. Yes. Oh, I have an effective hook. Yes. Um, I think, you know, checklist work a little bit better. I'm a big fan of qualitative feedback. And I also think that we have to put some of the, the ownership back on the kid, on the student, because the writing is theirs. It's not my writing. And a lot of times, when we sit down to it with a student to assess or have a conference, you know, we we typically take the paper and, you know, a lot of times the students are expecting us to tell us what's wrong with it. And that's not what I'm here for, really. I mean, I, I don't want to tell you what's wrong with it. You know, I'd like to tell you what's right with it, but I'd also like for you to tell me what it is you need help with. So like one of the revision strategies that I use a lot is something I learned from National Writing Project probably 18 years ago when I was in the uh, Midlands Writing Project at the University of South Carolina called Bless Press Address. And Wait, so that again. Bless, bless, bless Press, press Address. Okay. So that particular revision strategy, you talk to the student and you say, okay, all right, we're going to do Bless Press Address today. You need to tell me, it, you know, it, sometimes when you when you have written something and you really, you, you can't take hearing what's wrong with it. You know, you just need to hear the positive things. I just need you to bless it. Just tell me what I did right. Okay. And then sometimes you know that your paper you, there's not any place that you really know that has to be addressed right now or as a targeted area, but you know, there's some wrinkles. So you need, so I might ask, you know, your, your peer to press out the wrinkles, help you kind of make it better, make it smoother. You know, that might be making your uh, sentences flow better, incorporating some different vocabulary, that kind of thing. And then sometimes, you know, there's a problem somewhere in your paper and it might be with the dialogue. It might be the conclusion. It might be paragraph three. And then you, to, so in that case, the student would say, I need you to address paragraph three. And why is that helpful for me as a teacher? Because I've got 32 students and I don't have time. If you don't need me to read your whole paper and you just need me to focus on the conclusion, because that's the part that you need most help with, then that's what I'm going to do. So that part is that that's one of the reasons that I like that particular revision strategy, because it kicks it back on the student and also makes it easier for the teacher because you're not sitting there sifting through 32 five page papers. You're working on what is it that the kid needs the most. Wow. Does that make it makes total sense. And I'm just thinking again, I go back to that the classroom I was in this week, and it was like, I felt like I was all over the place checking their papers. And this would have given it so much more focus. And so then using that strategy, are there things that as a teacher, it's okay to just kind of ignore and say, you know what? Yes, this is something we need to address, but maybe now is not the paper for that because you know, we are going to move on. Do you know what I mean? Like at what point do you say like, okay, this is the thing we're focusing on and that's it. Yeah. So that's why I don't like these rubrics that have 85 different things to do because I don't, I, don't, I can't remember if at LitCon I did the activity with the peacock feathers. Yes, you did. Can you describe yeah. that for our listeners? Maybe if they need to know. So, so I do this thing with peacock feathers and it's, they're real peacock feathers and I have teachers balance them on their finger, but while they're balancing them on their finger, they have to walk around the room. They have to talk to people. They have to tell people about themselves. They have to keep balancing it. And there's a very specific way you balance it. You can't touch it. You can't hold it. Any of that stuff. Okay. So people, even though I have given multiple examples and I have pretty much given them a rubric for, you know, how to do it. Hang on one second. Hang on one second. Mm -hmm. And just listeners, so you know, we're talking like tall peacock feathers. Like these are not little bird feathers. I wish I had one down here. They're like, I don't know. I wish I had one down here, but they are, they are huge. Um, And even though I tell the teachers exactly what to do, you know, I say like, I, I, and I model it. I show you, mm-hmm. 
will fail. Okay. So then the next time we do it, all they have to do is balance it and they can balance it, you know, on their hand, on their tip of their finger. If you want to walk around, you can, but on a peacock feather, and I used to have a feather in a, a piece of the, a feather in one of these notebooks. I don't think I still have it anymore, but. But the second a, time they don't have to like introduce themselves and talk, right? It's just hold the feather. All okay. they do is they, is they balance it. And all they do is they focus on, there's a part in the feather that looks like an eye so at the very top of the feather. And you focus on the eye. You don't have to talk. You don't have to do any of that stuff. And everybody does it much better. And so I compare that to how our students feel when we, we give them these rubrics that ask them to do a, a, a hook, a clincher, you organize your paper, incorporate dialogue, use vivid vocabulary, employ effective transitions, and all that stuff. You don't really know what your focus is. So there's nothing to say that everybody in that room who failed miserably doing that first task I asked them to do could not be successful in doing what they're doing. Um, it's just when they walk in the room, none of them had ever done that before. And so their baseline is down here. And I'm asking them to do one of the most sophisticated tasks associated with this thing. So I explain how if we practice every day and we got, you know, balancing it down cold, and then we added a little bit each time. I could get you to that final product. That's the most advanced task, but we shouldn't start there. But that's how we do a lot in writing is we start with that most advanced advanced task and kids don't really know what to focus on. So that's a long way around the barn to say that I think that when when writing, I don't care what genre it is, you have to have your paper organized well. You do. Um, you have to have, you know, logical progression of thoughts. And sometimes that is, you know, in a very linear nature. Sometimes it's, you know, thematic in nature. It just all depends. I don't get a whole lot of heartburn over, you know, spelling for the, you know, the first go round, two rounds, whatever, because there's a lot of people who are educators and don't spell well. And they've managed to, you know, find a job teaching. So, you know, p people who are brilliant don't, some, some don't know how to spell. They don't spell well. But you know what they do? They figure out how to manage that, that, that piece. So I don't get heartburn over that. Um, I don't get a whole lot of heartburn over, you know, have, you know, kids who maybe don't write the most descriptive sentences initially, because the thing is, is that I can, I can work with something on paper. I can take a three word sentence and we can blow it up into, you know, a compound complex sentence, but I can't do anything with a blank piece of paper to help. So I think that, you know, confidence a lot of our students lack confidence in writing. Um, you know, some the way that we give feedback, I think it's all in how we couch the language, you know, and, and I'm guilty of this too, you know, telling students, this is off topic, this doesn't belong here. And then somehow that makes them think, well, I did I don't write well. And so I started using the analogy of like, you know, an off topic sentence, there's nothing wrong with the sentence. You know, it's like you're driving your car and you were supposed to park in lot A and you parked in lot B. You know, the car that you parked in lot B is still the same color. It still has the same amount of gas in it, same four tires, you know, the same interior, whatever. It's the same car. It's just parked in the wrong lot. So your sentence, fantastic sentence, it's just in the wrong lot. So how we couch the language and how we give feedback, I think is really, really important because, you know, hearing, writing is very personal and for a student to share writing with you and for a student to sit down with somebody and say, I want you to look at this, there's a vulnerability there and I'm out of trust 
that can be shattered with one sentence from a teacher or any, you know, anybody, you know, and I don't think that that goes away, you know, no matter how old you are, you know, because there are times when I get things back from my editor and I'm like, gosh, you know, that made perfect sense to me, but it didn't to her or they take things out that, you know, I thought should stay. And it's still really hard. You know, it's it's really, really difficult. And I compare it a lot to, you know, when, when students write things, a lot of times they write things that they put a lot of, you know, time and effort into and they might, they're, they're, they're proud of what they've done. And then they give it to you for you to say whether or not it's valuable or not. And, you know, I compare that a lot to like, you know, what we, I, I went through this, this a couple months ago, I'm going up for promotion to full professor and you do all this really good work that you value that I, I feel like is, is very valuable, but then you create this portfolio and you give it to other people and you say, all right, now you assess me and, you know, how devastating that would be for me if they say, well, we don't value this work. I think that's how a lot of writers feel when they get these bad grades. It's like I worked really hard on this and you still gave me a 70. That, uh, I don't have a goal. Why would you do it again? Right. You know? Yeah. Where's and, the motivation and, there? Well, and the other thing too, I think Jessica, we got to think about is that, you know, I'm not, I'm not a runner. Okay. I'm not a runner. You ever seen me running? You better run too. Somebody's chasing me. <laughs> but if I decided I wanted to run a marathon and I was going to go on a training plan, I would not start by running 26 miles. I wouldn't, okay, because I couldn't do it. I might make it, you know, half a mile and I'm not going to be successful. So if that was the only training plan that was put in front of me as a non-runner, how successful would I feel? I would never be able to successfully complete that 26 miles ever because the only training plan they ever gave me is one that required me to complete 26 miles. Now, imagine how students feel who are not good writers. They're not proficient at writing a sentence. And then we turn around and tell them we want them to write a multi-paragraph composition. Okay. So it's essentially you've given that kid who's not a runner a marathon training plan. And that's all you've given them every single time. So instead of that, you know, we got to run around the block first. So we have to get proficient at writing sentences and writing a few sentences and writing paragraphs and then writing for different uh, reasons and purposes and different audiences and across genres. And then when it's time to do those fully involved, like, you know, longer tasks, then it's a whole lot easier because you've been trained appropriately. A lot of our kids haven't been trained in such a way that they've been able to build their writing stamina because the only time they ever, you know, do is it is this cold start writing where they, you know, haven't written all semester. And then now they're on this big piece and it's again, it'd be like me getting off the couch and going to run 26 miles. I'm not going to enjoy it. So true. Okay. And I have the feeling any teacher listening to this right now is going to be like, okay, well, I need to change some things in my classroom, right? I want to embrace this new way of breaking up my units or assessing students or offering feedback, all the things. And they might be feeling like, oh, okay, it's a lot. It's a lot to take on, right? Because we're shifting these perspectives that we've probably been doing for many years. And that's what we were taught in school. So where do you recommend teachers start? What's like an action item they can take from this to feel a quick wing, to feel like, okay, I can do this. I think one of the easiest things that, that teachers can do to increase and improve writing instruction in their, in their classroom is to start by doing some type of quick write every day. And quick writes are exactly what they are. 
they are quick rates. Okay. And they don't require a whole lot of planning. They are ones that you can use um, that are, can, can roll in tandem with whatever you've got coming or they can just stand alone. Okay. Um, quick rights might be as simple as like, I might hold up um, the front of a, a, a greeting card or something and say, all right, what would the inside message be? What do you think the message of this card would be? Um, I might, you know, have, you know, I might have, I pull objects out of my purse or somewhere and just have them on the table and say, okay, I want you to tell me about who you think these might belong to. Tell me about the character. I might play a, a, a piece of music. I might have a photo on the board. There's a, there's a photo that I use a lot when I do professional learning, which is a cropped image of two people who are embracing. I remember yeah. this one. Yeah. And I say, what do you think is happening? Kids write it down. And then I show them the full picture and when you see the rest of the scene you see there are police in riot gear and there's all this debris on the street and I say all right how did your answer change that takes me like four or five minutes at the beginning of class okay um so I might bring in um a a food and or a piece of candy and everybody gets a piece of candy I'm like okay all right so we're going to describe this okay so this is you know give me you know how does it taste to you how does it I mean it is really really easy um and, and it allows you to, you know, show different things to kids. Um, when I taught middle school, I read to my students every day. And and that was aside from my uh, quick ride I did every day. But I read something to them. And most of the time, it was a picture book. And when I taught my undergrads and pre-service teachers at the university, I read to them every day, too. And they're grown people. And there was one time in particular where we were running behind. And I typically read them out the door. So we wrote coming in the door and I read them out the door. And so we, I was already over and I knew they had to go to class. And I was like, okay, y'all, you know, sorry, we're, I'm keeping you over, you know, but y'all got to go. And nobody moved. And I said, what, what are y'all doing? And they said, well, you haven't read to us. So then I had to read something really quickly. But, you know, those kinds of things, you know, I might read a picture book and say, all right, you know, tell me about, you know, what this makes you think of. I might read a picture book to the kids and not show them the pictures and have them draw, do a sketch to stretch. Uh, I might, re there's a, I love reading chapters that drop off. So like Sharon yes. Drake out of my mind is a very short first chapter. And it talks about, it's, it's about the, the little girl and how she is a word collector and how much she loved words, you know, pile up and drifts around her, you know, cathedral, Neapolitan, delicatessen, and all these words. And she says something like, um, I, I have not spoken one word ever. I am 14 years old. And then the chapter stops. And so I use that for a quick write. All right, tell me about what do you think? Why can't she speak? Why is she not speaking? You know, I think that's that's an easy thing because it doesn't matter what curriculum you're using, whether you're using HMH or Houghton Mifflin or, you know, no, you know, you don't have a writing program or a reading program. It doesn't matter. You can drop in quick writes tomorrow with very limited planning. And it also allows students to, you know, they, they are writing every day. But if you don't like whatever it is, the quick write topic is on, you don't ever, ever have to revisit it again. You know, um, so that that's that also is, I think, powerful for students because they're able to see I connected with this piece on Monday, but I didn't on Wednesday. And it's OK that I don't go back to the piece on Wednesday, but I can go back to the one on Monday. Yeah, what a powerful exercise. And that is it's so tangible for teachers. So. Implement quick writes in the classroom. That will be a quick win for you. And what I'm hearing overall is just make writing an everyday part of your classroom experience and not just this big unit that we focus on with all the things that we assess, but just really 
make it a part of your normal ELA curriculum. And I love that. It's just, it seems doable. It seems positive. And I'm just inspired by this. So I thank you for being here, for sharing with our teachers. And I know they're all going to be curious about where can they learn more about you? Where can they find your stuff? So would you share where they can read up more on your work or maybe get one of your wonderful books? Yeah. So um, I have three books that are in print right now. I'm working, I'm working on, if you can believe this, six more. Oh my um, gosh. I love yeah, it. I just, I just turned one in. I think two days ago. So now congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. So um, the first one is content writing that rocks and works. That's, uh, that was published by Shell Education in 2017. And that is more of a, a, a writing across the curriculum book. And then I have right now and right on um, 37 strategies for authentic writing in every content area. That's that one. And then I have um, writing workouts, uh, which is my newest one, and that's by um, Corwin uh, Literacy as well. And that one is more ELA focused. And even though um, the second book and the third book, you know, are the the the, the subtitle says six to twelve, all of them have uh, samples and things from elementary school too. So there are several different things in there and, and different modifications that you can use for elementary. And then one of the books that I have that's going to be coming out, I think in August of next year, is going to be one with Corwin Literacy that is a, a, a P through five or a K through five um, elementary book that's going to kind of mirror writing workouts. Uh, so that 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 is coming along with some other things that are that are coming out. Awesome. So be on the lookout, everyone, for these new books. And I see also that you are presenting. You're one of the featured speakers at Teach Your Heart Out in January, right? In Washington, D.C. So exciting. I'm actually looking into possibly attending that conference. So if I do, I will look out for you and come say hi. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be at the AMLE conference in November. I'm going to be at NCTE in November. I'm going to the Mississippi Literacy Association in December. And then uh, I'll be in Florida for the Florida Literacy Association Conference in January. Back to LitCon. I'll be in the Palmetto State Literacy Association as a keynote there. And then I'm at uh, SECTE, which I think is either in January or February. And then um, the Virginia State Literacy Association and the North Carolina Reading Association. Amazing. I think that's, yeah. And then I'm going to do the um, the Teacher Heart Out Cruise. In, I love it. You know, that thing looks pretty cool. It's a lot of stuff, but it's it's really fun because getting to see teachers and meet teachers and talk to them about what they're doing in their instruction is it's one of the best parts of my job, you know? Yes, I love that. Well, I mean, considering your busy schedule, thank you, thank you, thank you for being here with us and sharing your wisdom with all our listeners. So this it's just been a pleasure talking to you, Dr. Harper. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks again. Bye, everybody.